Well, one way Christians throughout church history have tried to simply express our theology. Theology is just a big word that means what we believe about God. One of the ways we've tried to simply express theology is through creeds. And I've heard it said that a creed is like a fat guy in a little coat. You know what I'm talking about? Fat guy in a little coat. You know what I mean? Like the coat's on but it's barely enough to cover anything, right? Right, that's, that's what a creed is. That's what systematic theology is. It's like a fat guy in a little coat. It gives us the ability to barely wrap our minds around God while at the same time not containing him. It gives us handles, right? <laughs> like pun intended. It gives us handles by which we can express our knowledge and understanding of God. Some of the examples throughout church history have been things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. You see, there's a lot of things that we can disagree on and still have fellowship, but there's some things like in a creed that we can't disagree on and still have fellowship and be on mission together because we lose the gospel. We lose Jesus. We lose the Bible. We lose objective truth. And so in a creed, oftentimes we, we have some of the most important Christian doctrine that we must agree on. This is a series we've come back to each summer in order to know basic Christian Theology In this series like this, we're seeking to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. Love the Lord our God with all of our mind, not just with our heart and our strength and our desire and passion and emotion and will, but with all of our minds. We seek to know God and understand his, his word because sometimes, as we said the last few weeks, sometimes life is gonna sucker punch you in the chin. It's gonna sucker punch you in the gut and you're not gonna always feel like it. Your heart's not gonna always be there. The emotion's not gonna always be there. You're gonna have those questions when that punch comes that, that are gonna make you question God and his love for you or his sovereignty. And it's in those moments that if we've been loving the Lord, our God, with all of our mind, we won't be blown back and forth. We won't be knocked off our feet. No, in spite of the punch that life brings our way, we'll be able to hold our ground. We'll be able to stand our ground because we've been loving the Lord, our God, with all of our minds. In previous years, we've covered the doctrine of the Bible the history of scripture, where it came from, the authority of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture. Uh, we've talked about the doctrine of sin. What is sin? What does it mean? What does it do to our lives? And this year, we're going to be covering the doctrine of the church. Now, a doctrine in systematic theology is what the whole Bible teaches on a subject. So we're gonna be here for about 72 hours. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you are excited. Some of you are like, get me out of here now, okay? No, we're not going to be here. We're not going to be here that long, but we're covering the doctrine of the church because why, why are we talking about this? We're talking about the doctrine of the church because most Americans specifically are grossly misunderstanding what the church is. Many do not realize who we are, why we exist and why we do what we do and what we're even supposed to do in the first place. They attend church like it's an event something they go to attend if they have time, if there's not something else going on, right? If there's not a tournament, then we'll go to church. We treat it like it's an event. And at the same time, there's never been a more critical spirit and distrust in the church in our country in my lifetime and, and, and maybe since the founding of our country. There's, there's a more critical spirit towards the church and distrust of the church like never before in our country's history. So, so it's important, it's incumbent upon us to know who the church is, what the church is supposed to do, why it exists even in the first place. Michael Byrd, 
An Australian theologian said this in his systematic theology. He said this, for some folks, the gospel is an iGod app that enables a person to get a Wi-Fi connection with heaven where the one mediator between God as man is Apple. To use another metaphor, the church is reduced to the weekly meeting of Jesus' Facebook friends, people that just like Jesus. The locus of Christianity becomes God and me rather than God and us. One could contrast two slogans. I believe, therefore I am saved with we believe, therefore we are God's people. Evangelicals tend to prefer the former. I believe, therefore I'm saved rather than the latter. We believe, therefore we are God's people as the default setting for their ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just a big fancy word that means what we believe about the church. The church fathers said, if God is our father, the early, these are early church theologians that came right after the apostles called the early church fathers. Many of the early church fathers said, if God is our father, then the church is our mother. Michael Byrd, seeking to help us understand what they meant by that said that the church is the mother of the saved who nurtures her children on the gospel. So what if you are missing out on the God ordained community that God has chosen to nurture you by? What if you're missing out? Like, what if you're missing out on God's best for your life as it relates to the community that God has ordained to help nurture you and grow you and disciple you and to see you flourish in this life and make sure you've got the truth to make it into the next life? Here's my hope with this series. Our hope, my hope, is that prayerfully the Holy Spirit will give you a better understanding of the church, who it is and what we do, why we exist. And then secondly, that the Holy Spirit will move in your heart to deepen your love for and your willing to sacrifice for the church of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. So today we're talking about who the church is. And I wanna invite you to follow along in the sermon notes in our app. If you don't have our app, download it in your app store, the City Church Lubbock. You can follow along. So much to talk about today. Lots of points, lots of Bible. And you're gonna, yeah, that's gonna be an understatement when we get to the end of this, okay? Lots of Bible, lots of quotes, okay? We're covering the doctrine of the church. So this is a, a survey, right? This is an overview of who the church is. So there's a lot here. So the best way to engage, to stay like connected with us over the next 72 hours. Okay, you're still awake, just, just making sure, okay? The best way to stay connected is with our app, okay? Also, when you open up the message notes, you're gonna notice, if you've never seen this before, there's little blue boxes all the way down the right side, okay? Those are for where you can take your own notes. So we've got our notes, and you can take your own notes as you type in those blue boxes down the right side of those notes, the sermon notes in our app. All right. Who is the church? Well, first of all, we got to start off with the Greek word for church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia means the called out ones that gathered or assembled. Ek in Greek is coming out. This is the called out ones, klesia, that gather together, that assemble together. So the church are the called out ones that gather together, that assemble together. They, they are called out of the world to become a new people. And this new people are to gather together. They assemble together. It's why Jesus said, you're going to be in the world, but you're not going to be of the world. 
You're going to be in the world, but you're not going to be of the world. You're going to be in the world, but I'm going to call you out of the world and I'm going to form you and I'm going to create you into this new creation, into this new people. You're going to be a people that are called out of the world. You're going to remain in it, but you're going to be called out of it. And you're going to gather, you're going to assemble together. So this idea that we're called out of the world, we're in the world, but not of the world, means this. Just by being the people of God, it means we won't think like the world. We won't look like the world. We won't sound like the world. We won't believe like the world. We won't act like the world. We are going to be very different from the world. And so Jesus said, because of that, you're going to be hated. They hated me. They're going to hate you. Oh, but, but we're not supposed to be hated and, and, and everyone's supposed to like us and we don't want to offend anybody. No. Jesus said, they hated me. They're going to hate you too. Now we don't want them to hate us because we're jerks, but because we follow Jesus, because we've been called out of the world, we're going to be different. We're this called out, separated people. So because we don't look like, think like, act like, talk like the rest of the world, we're going to be hated, Jesus said. They hated me, they're going to hate you too. And here's how this people relate to God, how they know God, how they serve God. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul said it like this. We serve God in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So this new people that have been called out, that gather together and assemble together, they serve God, they know God, they, they worship God, they pursue God in the new way of the Holy Spirit. This is the new covenant that the prophets said, God said through his prophets to the nation of Israel, I'm gonna make a new covenant with you. It's not gonna just be with you, it's gonna be with the nations. But I'm gonna make a new covenant with you and in this new covenant, I'm gonna take your old heart, your stony heart, your hard heart out of your flesh. I'm gonna take your whole heart, your heart out and I'm gonna give you a brand new heart that is sensitive to me. I'm gonna place my spirit inside of you. This is what God said. I'm gonna place my spirit inside of you and the Holy Spirit inside is gonna move you to follow me, to worship me, to love me, to serve me. The, the Holy Spirit is gonna move you from the inside out. That's the new way of the spirit instead of the old way of the written code, the old way of the law. That was like a checklist that you had to perform. It was all the do's and the don'ts. But in the new covenant, God places his spirit inside of us. And the Bible says he writes his laws on our hearts. And so there's this new way of serving and worshiping and obeying God. It's in the new way of the Holy Spirit. This is the new covenant. This, this new people that God has formed, that he has called out of the world, that assemble and gather together are going to relate to God by a new covenant in which the Holy Spirit of God will indwell every single believer and change them from the inside out. Change what they care about, change what they want, change what they dream, change what they desire. The Holy Spirit of God is gonna produce this new fire inside of you. That's why someone over here is like pumped about 72 hours of this, okay? Because the Holy Spirit of God is like, I want that, I need that, I love you, Jesus, I want more of you, Jesus, I love your word, I want more of your word, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. That wasn't there before. You didn't care about any of this before. You didn't care about Jesus. You didn't care about his word. You didn't care about the church. But now, as this people of God that have been called out, you have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. There's this new fire that's burning for the things of God. This is the new covenant. This is how we serve God. In the new way, Paul said, of the Holy Spirit. 
Next, this, this church, this ecclesia of God is now our primary identity. You're a child of God in the family of God, and that is now your new primary identity in any other identity, whether it be national, political, sexual, ethnic, gender, is now secondary and is informed by your primary identity as a follower of Jesus in the family of God. You follow me? Every other identity is now secondary and informed by your primary identity as the called out people of God, the separated, the holy ones that gather together, that assemble together. Every other identity is secondary and submits to your primary identity as a child of God in the family of God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Ephesians chapter two, verse 14, Paul says this. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. So there were Jews and Gentiles, that was their identity, but now they're united into one people that has become their new primary identity. And their identity, their ethnic identity as a Jew or a Gentile is now secondary. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself, watch this, one new people from the two groups. So there were ethnic Jews and Gentiles. There was male and female. There, there, there was all kinds of different, there's, there's poor and there's rich, right? And, and, and now through the cross, through the gospel in the new covenant, these different groups of people with their different identities are now made into one new people. And this is now their primary identity and every other identity is secondary. Together as one body, verse 16, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards each other was put to death. So, so the hostility, the animosity that all of these other identities create between us are now put to death because there's now a new primary identity that we have as the people of God. We are called out of the world to gather together, to assemble together with this brand new people. Michael Bird again, in his evangelical theology said this, the ancient Christian faith has always included an affirmation about the place of the church in God's redemptive project, that this is in God's plan, in his rescue plan to rescue the nations from their sin. The Apostles' Creed includes the confession, I believe in the communion of the saints. To say such a thing is to identify the church as a communion, that is a common union, of believers united with each other by their love for God, their fellowship with Christ, and their life in the spirit. It includes saints who have already entered heaven, the church triumphant, those who've gone before us, who've received the salvation of their souls, and the saints who are still struggling here on earth, the church militant, who are still suffering and sacrificing in Christ, pursuing Jesus and spreading the gospel. They are a people believing in a single God, answering a common call, confessing a common gospel, receiving a common faith, sealed by a common baptism, and serving a common Lord, Jesus Christ. The communion of the saints is the living fellowship of all believers who participate in a shared worship, a shared spiritual, shared spiritual gifts, shared graces, material goods, and mutual edification. So, this is who the church 
is. And now we're going to look at four pictures or metaphors of the church in the scripture to help us believe rightly about the church and then to respond rightly to the truth about who the church is. So we're going to talk about each of these pictures first, and then we'll finish up at the end talking about what they mean for us. So here's the first picture of the church that we see in the scripture. Number one, the church is a branch. The church is a branch. In John chapter 15, verse five, Jesus says this. Yes, I am the vine. You are the what? Branches. You're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Revealing the attitude of dependence upon Christ for obedience, transformation, growth, blessing. It's all found in Christ. We're, we're just a branch. And a bit different view of a branch, Paul gives us in Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 24. Paul says this, but some of these branches from Abraham's tree, the, some of the people of Israel, have been broken off. Paul says not, not all the branches, not all, not all of Abraham's descendants are, are, have been broken off, but, but some have and, and some remain, he says. This is talking about the discipline of God towards his chosen people, the the nation of Israel, this, this physical, ethnic, national identity of Israel. Some within these branches from Abraham's tree, they, they've been cut off, some, some haven't. And then he says this, and then you Gentiles who were branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in, meaning this, you and I as Gentile, like non-Jewish people, my guess is, is every one of us are Gentile. My, my guess is, maybe we have a, you know, an ethnic Jew among us, but my guess is, is almost all of us are, are, are Gentile. What, what Paul is saying here is you were a branch from a, a wild tree. Like you were idolaters, you were rebels. You, you did not pursue the one true God as the nation of Israel did. They, they were monotheists believing in the one true God. You, you people are, are from polytheists who believe in, uh, people who believe in many gods and who have rejected the truth about the one true God. You're, you're this wild, olive tree. You're this wild branch, rebels against God, idolaters seeking after their own pleasure and their own fame. So you're these wild branches. And he says, but you've been grafted in to God's tree. So now you also receive the blessing of God that is promised to Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. So Paul says, you, you, have been grafted in and now you are receiving some of the blessings that was promised to Abraham and in the nation of Israel. I believe those are spiritual blessings, that there are physical, national, ethnic blessings still to come for the nation of Israel. We don't have time to dive into all of that, but because we've been grafted into this tree, this tree of God, we receive, we are the recipients by faith because of God's grace. We are the recipients of some of these blessings that were promised to Abraham and to his kids. Verse 18. So don't brag. You must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You're just a branch, not the root. Verse 19. Well, you may say those branches were broken off to make room for me. Well, Yes, but remember those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ and you were there because you do believe. He says, don't, don't get too arrogant or proud, right? Those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And so God has disciplined the nation of Israel throughout history 
And specifically, now in the new covenant, so many of Israel have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They are now experiencing this discipline that Paul's describing as these branches being broken off. So he says, so don't think too highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe towards those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. You, by nature, were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he'll be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. When you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you learn, Paul tells us prophetically, that these branches of Israel that have been cut off are going to eventually return and believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And we long for that day. We pray For the chosen people of God in the nation of Israel, the ones that he entrusted with his word and with his worship, with the truth of it, we're longing, we are praying for them to believe and to return to faith in their Messiah. The gospel came first to the Jew and then to the Greek, to the Gentile. And so the Gentile, the Greek, that's, that's you and I, that's where we've come from. We long for the Jew to believe in Christ as their Messiah. And one day, as we continue to study the scripture, again, we don't have time to dive into all of this, but one day, these branches, these branches of Israel are going to return. And they're going to believe in Jesus as their Messiah before Jesus returns. Jesus talks a little bit about this and explains this a little bit more in Matthew chapter 21. He describes a parable of evil farmers that beat the son of a landowner and try to steal the estate from the landowner. And, and Jesus is saying these evil farmers that beat his son and reject his son and try to steal this estate are the nation of Israel who have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And specifically these Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus is speaking to have rejected him, Jesus, as their Messiah. And he's describing them as these evil farmers. And so Jesus says this, so the kingdom of God has been taken away from you. The branches have been cut off. There's been a discipline that's come from God to his children, the nation of Israel. The branches have been cut off. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, has been taken away from you. And it's given to a people, to a new people that will love his son and produce the fruit of the kingdom of God. That's you. And that's me. We are that new people that God has called out by his grace and through the power of his spirit. We are that people that God has called out, that he has created and that he has given the blessing of the kingdom of God to, so that we might produce its fruit. But Paul says in Romans 11, don't forget don't get too prideful. Don't think too highly of yourself. Because if you stop trusting, if, if you don't produce the fruit of the kingdom, you could be cut off too. You could be taken away from you. In Revelation, the wording is, I'm going to take your lampstand away. The discipline of God will come against you. And so Paul says, don't, don't think of yourself too highly. Don't be arrogant. 
Don't be proud. You are a branch. You're just a branch. And we praise God that we're just a branch. But we don't think too highly of ourselves. That the church is this branch that's been grafted in. The kingdom has been given to us to a people that will love the son and produce the fruit of the kingdom. Secondly, the church is a bride. The church is a bride. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse two, for I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure, what's that word? Bride. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Our husband, the bridegroom, is Jesus. Ephesians chapter five, verse 25. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, a wife and church being equated here. And he gave his, up, his life up for her. Jesus gave up his life for her, for the church. 26, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. 29, no one hates his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. Just as Christ cares for the church and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one, 32. Watch this, this is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and his wife, the church, are one. Jesus loves his church. He served the church by giving himself up for her. And this is a picture of our relationship with the church and what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has given himself up for his church. He loves his church. That's you and I. But then if that's what Jesus has done for his church, then, then that means that's what you and I are called to do for the church as well. As we follow Jesus, we're gonna love the church and give ourselves up for the church, the bride of Christ. Revelation 19 verse seven says this, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. There's this roar in heaven that John is hearing that's crying out, let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. Revelation 21 nine. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Revelation 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. That the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the testimony of the church, that is the wife of Christ, the bride of Christ is come. Come Lord Jesus, we are awaiting your return. We are your bride, you're the bridegroom, you have left and we are awaiting your return. So the cry of the church is come Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit in us and through us is saying, come Lord Jesus, we're awaiting, we're longing for your return. And some scholars say, that maybe what's happening here is that it's the spirit and the bride that are crying out to the world, come to Jesus. 
Come follow Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. If that's the cry of the church, that's the cry of the Holy Spirit through the church, to the world, to the nations. Come. Come to Jesus. Come follow. Put your faith in Jesus. So the church is the bride of Christ. Next, the church is a body. The church is a body. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Verse 14, yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that doesn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, then how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how could you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. You and I as followers of Jesus are the body of Christ. Each one of us is a part. And one part can't say to the body, I don't need you. And the body can't say to a body part, I don't need you. That would be dangerous and unhealthy for any body part to ever think they don't need the body. And how arrogant and proud would a body be to say, I don't need that body part. The church is a body. And then last, the church is a building. You might be thinking, wait a second, Clayton, the church isn't a building, it's the people. And while I understand and I get the sentiment, the scripture says otherwise. The church is a building, it's a house, it's a temple. First Corinthians chapter three, verse nine and 10. You are God's what? Building. You are God's building. Because of God's grace to me, I've laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. First Corinthians three, verse 16. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God, the house, the building of God, and that the spirit of God lives inside of you together in this building, in this temple. Second Corinthians six, verse 16. And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Ephesians two, verse 20 and 21. Together, we are his house. We're his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. First Peter two, verse four and five, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. You are living stones in this temple, in this building for God. Titus chapter one, verse seven, a church leader, Paul says, is a manager of God's household. 
There, there's this physical expression of the body of Christ and there are leaders in that body over that household. Hebrews chapter three, verse six. But Christ is the son is in charge of God's entire house and we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 21. And since we have such a great high priest who rules over God's house, the church is a building, it's a house, it's a temple. So what do these pictures and metaphors of the church mean for us? Well, in the next couple of weeks, we're gonna talk about why we exist and how we operate we're going to talk about the purposes of the church, leadership inside the church, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God has given to the church. We're going to do a fly through, a walk over each spiritual gift to maybe help you identify with one of those gifts. So, so that's where we're headed over the next couple of weeks. But, but what do these pictures, specifically the ones we talked about today, mean for us? Well, if we're this called out assembly, if we're this called out people that are supposed to assemble and gather, then... That means we're supposed to assemble and gather together. But th here, here's what this means. Church online will never be enough. Podcasts will never be enough. Christian books will, will never be enough. No, you are a part of a people that assemble and gather. Church online, podcasts, things of that nature are great for when you're out of town or when you're sick. But the normal week-to-week, month-to-month identity of the church is that we gather, we assemble. Something special happens when we get together, when we worship, when we pray, when we hear from God's word. When I see your face and you see mine, something special happens. And church online will never cut it. That podcast, it's never going to cut it. It's never going to be just you and Jesus. That is nowhere in the Bible. For someone to say, well, I just, you know, you know I don't really like the church. I just going to be me and Jesus out on the lake. You know, Jesus and I talk all 18 holes on that golf course. Like, I promise you, like me and Jesus are good. That is wrong. If, if you're not getting together with Jesus's church, then you and Jesus ain't good. That is dead wrong. The identity, a marker, the DNA and the very name is that we are called out and assemble. We, we gather. It also, it also means that if we've been called out of the world and we don't look like the world, talk like the world, think like the world, act like, that means we are called as the people of God to endure rejection, disdain, and persecution. It means as much as we seek to love our neighbor and love the person who has never given their life to Jesus, as much as we seek to love and serve and bless others, that this world ultimately is going to reject us and hate us just like they hated Jesus. And so we understand why we don't fit in. We understand why what we believe is being more and more rejected and reviled in our country. We don't 
We don't like it. We, we still pray for people. We love people. We bless people. They're not our enemies. But we, we understand it. We get it. We're not surprised by that. And so as the people of God, we assemble and we gather so that we might endure the disdain, the reviling, the rejection, and yes, one day, the persecution that will come our way for being the people of God. If we're a branch, then that means there should be a humility and a mercy that, that marks us, that, 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 that there's no room for pride or arrogance in the life of a Christian who is just a branch. The, the, the creed of a, of a Christian is that I was sick and needed a doctor. I, I was broken and I needed someone to put me back together. I was dirty and I needed someone to come and cleanse me because I couldn't do it for myself. That, that's the creed of the Christian. There is no pride in that. That's why Paul, that's why Paul said, if I'm gonna boast, I'm gonna boast in the cross because there's nothing about me and in me that there is to boast about. I'm gonna boast in the cross. There is room for no pride or humility in the life of a Christian that would look down self-righteously on any other group of people. That is not our heart. That is not our attitude towards someone who disagrees with us or to a world that is even rejecting us. So there is zero room for pride or arrogance in a branch that is totally and completely dependent on a vine for its nutrients, for spiritual growth. We are to be a humble and merciful people. If we're the bride of Christ, it means we're called to await the bridegroom's return. We're to look forward for the return of Jesus. John wrote in 1 John chapter three, that all who have this hope in Christ long for his return and then purify themselves. They, they, they long for his return. And as the bride of Christ, we seek to purify ourselves, just like Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter five, that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel and the, uh, the grace that God gives us and through the word, we're being washed and we're being cleansed and, and we're being purified. You see, there's always this already but not yet aspect to the gospel. We've been saved from our sin, but ultimately one day we're going to be saved. We're, we're, we're justified, we're right with God now, but, but he who began a good work in us is gonna carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So there's this sanctification and transformation process that is continually happening in the life of a believer, in the bride of Christ, who awaits her bridegroom's return. John says, all who have this hope, all who are waiting, all who are looking forward to the return of Christ purifies themselves. This is a Holy Spirit-driven, gospel-centered grace-enabled effort to reject sin, repent from sin, and pursue holiness. That's what we seek to do as the bride of Christ. We await his return and we pursue holiness and purity. As the bride, Jesus has loved his church, his bride, and he has proved it by giving himself up for her. Was she worthy of this love and service? No. She's going to be without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, holy and without fault because of what Jesus has done for her. But the church wasn't that way before, and yet Jesus still loved her, pursued her, and gave himself up for her. So, check this out. 
The church, the bride of Christ, requires grace. In the same way that you desperately need grace in your standing before God, the church needs grace by all those who consider themselves to be the people of God. Because in the same way you weren't worthy of the grace and mercy of God, corporately together as the church, that means you and I as the body of Christ are not worthy. We're not worthy of the grace and mercy of God. Yet Jesus, the groom, still loves his bride. He loves the church in spite of all of her flaws, her shortcomings, and her missing it. And boy, have we missed it over 2,000 years of church history. And we still are. Let's just admit, we are all still, even in this form of church right now, me, you together, right here, right now, we are missing it. We don't have it all together. And if you're here for very long, you're gonna be like, boy, those guys are messed up. Yeah, join the party, so are you. Oh, those ch churches full of hypocrites. No excuse. We need, to, we need to rightly follow the Lord, but, but come on and join us. We can use another. The church requires grace. In the same way that Jesus has shown grace to his bride, those that consider themselves to be a part of the bride would show grace to each other and grace towards the church, even when we miss it. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, there's even more. Jesus not only loves his church and gives himself up for her, he believes in her. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. He believes in his church. It's his plan A and there is no plan B. So, so that means those of us who've been hurt by the church, who've been burned by the church, this isn't excusing it. It doesn't mean that that sin doesn't need to be dealt with by that person or that church leader. It doesn't mean that confrontation and reconciliation don't need to happen. But if you've been burned by the church, if you've been hurt by the church, then I'm sorry, those people might have hurt you, but in the same way you desire grace before God, you are to extend that grace to people and to the bride in the same way that Jesus has extended that grace to you and to his bride himself. If we're the body of Christ, that means we can never say, I don't need you. No, it means we need each other and it means we all have a part to play. If you were to cut off a finger, a toe, a hand, a foot, an ear, both the body and the body part would be in serious trouble. Anytime you aren't connected to the body of Christ, things are going to go bad for you. And so as followers of Jesus, the people of God, the bride of Christ, the, the body of Christ, we, we are to find our place. Am I an ear? Am I a hand? Am I a foot? An eye? A nose? A mouth? What, 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 what is my part to play and, and, and am I playing it? Am I serving and giving myself up for the body as that body part and as Jesus has done for us? You got to find your place. You got to find your role in the body of Christ. If we're the building, the house, the temple of the Holy Spirit, then that means while Every one of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant. When we gather together, 
We together are also the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so there's something about living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, that there's an aspect of this that happens when we gather together. That that a Spirit-filled and led life is going to happen and it's going to form in us as we meet together. Because we are this building, this house, this temple of the Holy Spirit. God moves and works in unique and special ways when we are together. If we're this building that are living stones, then that means this. We're here right now, you and I, because of saints that have gone before us and we are to honor them. Saints throughout church history. We didn't get here without their sacrifice, their blood, sweat, and tears, without their faith, without their willingness on the part of many of them to die for Jesus. And so in spite of how much people throughout church history have missed it, we are here and we have either learned from their success or their mistakes. And so we honor those living stones in the house, in the building that have gone before us. You know, when you're growing up and you're younger, it's so tempting to look at an older generation, how they've missed it, and to look at them with disdain and then disrespect. But if we're a house, then young believer, you're here because of the sacrifices of saints that have gone before you. Trust me, some of us in this room right now are in a church because of the older saints in this room that have given their blood, sweat, and tears for you to be here. And you've, you've kind of been here free so far. Like you, you haven't done anything for this to to be here and you owe a debt of gratitude for those who are giving their blood, sweat, and tears. We're we're living stones in a building. You're not here on accident and, and you're not here because people haven't gone before you and paved the way and paid the price for you to be here. The question is, is when you're going to take your place and you're going to take your spot as that living stone and give of yourself and invest your time, money, blood, sweat, and tears for the sake of living stones that are going to be built on the top of you. So we look back and we honor those that have come before us. But then if we're a house, we're this building of living stones, then that means we're to sacrifice and invest and serve and give ourselves up for a future generation that is going to come after us and stand on our shoulders. We're a building. We're we're living stones. And if we're this temple of the Holy Spirit, then that means we're, we're a priesthood of believers that, that serve God and praise God and intercede on behalf of a lost world. And all these pictures and all these metaphors of the church, we see both invisible and visible aspects to the church. There's this invisible reality that's taking place inside of us that then expresses itself in this physical gathering and assembly. Let me, let me show you more about what I'm talking about. Michael Byrd, again, in his evangelical theology, spoke about this nature, this invisible, invisible nature of the church. Here's what he said. What is needed in evangelicalism, and I would say especially in America, is a better appreciation of the visible church. You cannot have a churchless Christianity any more than a Christless Christianity. In Acts, God did not save people and add them to a database. No, he added them to the church. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer argued that the body of Christ can only be a visible body or else it is not a body at all. Christians are called to express their spiritual unity in visible forms and their ministries must be visible expressions of grace and service. Only a visible church can preach in the marketplace, found schools, build orphanages, create hospitals, and administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. For Karl Barth, another theologian, the visible and invisible nature of the church is based on the visible and invisible nature of divine grace in the incarnation. The Lord invisibly rules the church. The word has an invisible effect on believers, but a visible event brings them together and holds them in unity with each other. The invisible and visible church are not two churches, one earthly and the other spiritual. Instead, they are part of the one church. The visible forms lives wholly by the invisible mystery and the invisible church can be found only by seeking out the visible church. The true church is the invisible becoming visible. So there's something invisible that God does inside of us through the gospel and in the new covenant. But the result is something visible, a gathering, a assembly together, whereby we love each other and serve each other and minister and share the gospel and pray and worship, study the word. There's a visible gathering. And then finally, last picture metaphor of the church is that the church is a family. The church is a family. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul said this, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own, what's that word? Let's try it again. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own what? Family. By bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ, this is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Scripture says Jesus is the firstborn among those who will rise from the grave and he's looking for some brothers and sisters. He's the firstborn. And your entrance into the family, into the building, into the body, into the bride, into the branch, doesn't come by attendance. And it doesn't come through baptism. And it doesn't come through taking the Lord's Supper. No, your entrance into the family. Paul just said it in Ephesians chapter one. How are we adopted into the family? God brings us to himself through Jesus. It's through the gospel that you find entrance into the family of God, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, this building that Jesus is coming back for. You enter into the family in the same way you entered into your physical family. You're born. And if you want into the family of God, you must be born again. When you give your life to Jesus, you trust in his payment of your fine through his death on the cross, your sin is forgiven, you're made right with God, you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven, but you enter into this new community, this new family, whereby Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You, you've got brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at the person next to you and say, what's up brother, what's up sister? Yeah, we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, among which Jesus is the first born. And if you want in the family, then today is your day. Give your life to Jesus, that you might be forgiven of your sin, made right with God, and you can enter into this new family as you're born again. Jesus the firstborn among those who will rise. When you're born again, you give your life to Jesus. Even though you die, you will rise from 
the grave because of your faith in Jesus. If that's you and you want to give your life to Jesus today, jump on our app, fill out our connect form, and let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's the big idea today. Then I belong to Jesus's family. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you belong to Jesus's family and your family belongs to Jesus's family. Jesus said, my mother and my brothers are those that follow me. This is your family. And so you have a part to play. Your family has a part to play. Hebrews chapter 10 says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other daily. Meet together and encourage one another. In Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, we see this early church devoting themselves together to one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one mission, and one, one focus. It was a family that were committed to one another. See, the church isn't a place that you just go to get entertained and get a little Jesus for a little bit. No, it's a family. It's a body, it's a bride, it's a building, it's a branch. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology said this, each of the metaphors used for the church can help us to appreciate more of the richness of privilege that God has given us by incorporating us into the church. The fact that the church is like a family should increase our love and fellowship with one another. The thought of the church that is like the bride of Christ should stimulate us to strive for greater purity and holiness and also a greater love for Christ and submission to him. The image of the church's branches in a vine should cause us to rest in him more fully. The idea of an agricultural crop should encourage us to continue growing in the Christian life and obtaining for ourselves and others the proper spiritual nutrients to grow. The picture of the church as God's new temple, building, house, should increase our awareness of God's very presence dwelling in our midst as we meet, even right now in this moment. The concept of the church as a priesthood should help us to see more clearly the delight God has in the sacrifices of praise and good deeds that we offered him. The metaphor of the church as the body of Christ should increase our interdependence on one another and our appreciation of the diversity of gifts within the body. But let's be honest, right? This all sounds great and good, but our, our families are committed to a lot of other things. Let's just be real. Like our, our, our families are committed, more committed to a lot of other things than we are to the body, the bride, the building, the branch. So let's just be real about that. But then let's ask the Holy Spirit to begin to transform our hearts and give us this passion, give us this desire to pursue these images and these pictures of the church to where a commitment to our family, this family, is stronger than our own comfort, is stronger than an offense or a hurt, stronger than even our schedules. So let me ask you, what would it, what would it look like to give yourself up for just like Jesus did? What would it look like to give yourself up for, to serve, to give to, to believe in your church this next season? You know, we learned about the early church in Acts 1 through 28. But what I want us to see today is that we are the next chapter. We're Acts 29, not, not a church planning network, but we are Acts 29. We are the next chapter. 
And I think God wants us to take that seriously. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word that gives us these pictures of the church. And God, I pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would just, God, illumine our minds and change our hearts that that we might see and desire that the richness of the privileges of being the body, the bride, the branch, the the building. And so God, I, I pray that maybe some here and they've given their lives to Jesus and they, they, they need to go public with their relationship with Jesus. God, I pray that right now they would sign up to get baptized for our, our baptism celebration next weekend. God, there's some that have just been attending an event and, and they, it's time for them to go deep. That's what it looks like for them in this next season with their church. They, they need to go deep. They need to start serving. They need to get in a city group. They need to become a member. They need to start, start giving. God, whatever it is that your spirit is leading us to do in this next season, God, I I just pray that your spirit would move in our minds and hearts and bring transformation, that we would begin to believe rightly about the church and then respond accordingly as your spirit leads. But God, I pray, knowing that this is not who we are yet, that you would give us this holy passion and desire to pursue this and to give ourselves up for it. God, knowing that it's your best for us and it's in your name we pray, amen. Would you stand as our team leads us in worship?